Welcome to Private Practice Podcast, Season 6, Episode 6, The Unconscious Part 2. Well, Episode 8, but that would be totally wrong anyway, because that would be logical, rational, left-brain thinking, completely at odds with the symbolic unconscious. And welcome to the forest of terrible things again. You find us amongst some newly growing... Defence mechanisms. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> um, what do we have seeding here in this part of the undergrowth? Something spicy and hot and dangerous, but tasty. Do you want to give a description of the forest? Mm. The things that you can <clears throat> smell, the things mm-hmm. that you can see, the things that you can potentially taste if you lick them. No, I like the forest to be completely unknown to the listener. (laughs) Like the unconscious is completely unknown to us. Well, completely unknown, or it depends how you look at it, because everything that is in your unconscious right now is absolutely unknown, but if you draw it into consciousness, then it becomes known. And there are things that you can know now that can go into consciousness and then become unknown again. So... The forest is only unknown when you're not in the bit that you're not in. When you're in the bit that you're in, that bit of the forest is known to you because you're there. Cool. That's okay. why. I... Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so the entire uh, realm of anything that could be to do with the mind is made up of conscious and unconscious yes and Jung said that nothing can be said to be truly conscious because tell me something you know you're a cock no i just i just um well that's i know that those jars are made of glass does that i prefer the first one it was more interesting you mean didn't something i know about a person or the self tell me something you know about me you're absolutely full of yourself so that knowledge or that piece of information that you hold to be true in consciousness uh-huh. comes from a mycelial network of underground unconscious knowledge that you can't put into language until some of it comes into consciousness without your choosing without your curation the word that you don't like so 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 basically the fruiting the mushroom which is the fruit of the mycelial network is james is a cock uh yes but that is our conscious yeah The, the mushroom is our consciousness um not to be mistaken with any other kind of you know quasi scientific or even purely scientific references to mushrooms this is just a simile a metaphor for the unconscious and conscious mind the underground structure of a of a mushroom is a vast network of tiny white um, fungal strands called mycelium and the bit that we see and the bit that we eat is called the mushroom and so you're saying brilliantly that the stuff we can't see underground is the unconscious mind the mycelial network and the stuff that we can see is the mushroom, the fruit, and that's their consciousness. And it doesn't exist without the network. Wait, shit, did you come up with that, with that yourself? 
Well, how how could I possibly say that I came up with it myself? But I do know that very good. It's very recent that you introduced me to the idea of the mycelial network. So, firstly, you can credit yourself, and secondly, or actually, probably Paul Stamets is that his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him. I'd probably credit him rather than you. Yeah, because I just heard it on a podcast and then got the book and then read the book and, you and just... then start to try and grow different mushrooms <laughs> to discover what a mycelial network looks like. Yeah, yeah. Credit Paul Stamets. And you've just had your eight o'clock clapping as a key worker member of the NHS, so you don't need any more congratulating this evening mm. from me. No, I don't. But also, I think I did read a description of dreams being a kind of mushroom, but it was atom bomb mushroom cloud. As in like the, the shape of it, the way that it, yes. it rises and fills a vast space? or Yeah, to, to, and that was in the context of describing dreams. So I appropriated that for the, for the mushroom. Good one, it's a really good one. It, it's, it's such a clear image, isn't it? What is beneath the ground... Um, being complex and large and we can't see and therefore is unknown to us and what is being above the ground the fruit is in our conscious mind it's brilliant i love it well it is i think but for the for the list for the skeptical listener oh yeah i bet there's one or two of them i think what i want to to um talk about is the difference between psychology and psychoanalysis ah Straight into that, eh? Okay, cool, cool, cool. That's fine, that's fine. I mean, I don't think that was number one on my list, and I did number them inappropriately. Did you inappropriately or irrelevantly? Like... Irrelevantly, but I've appropriately gone straight into number two. Straight in at number two this week is the psychology versus psychotherapy. Oh, actually, no, sorry. I inadvertently did number one without realising yeah. I'd done number one, but I was going to quote page yeah. 112 of yeah. my copy of On the Nature of the Psyche by Jung. Mm-hmm. Let's see if this would have been worthwhile at the appropriate moment. When you were in full swing yep. talking about mushrooms, yep. I could have interrupted you to get my quote in when I thought it was necessary, but right. I didn't. Let's reenact that then. So, oh, and the mycelial network and the, the fruiting things, and it's so exciting. And Jung said oh. in On the Nature of the Psyche, about when he was talking about the contents of the unconscious, uh, he said, the unconscious depicts an extremely fluid state of affairs, everything of which I know, but of which I'm not at the moment thinking, everything of which I was once conscious, but have now forgotten, everything perceived by my senses but not noted by my conscious mind, everything which, involuntarily and without paying attention to it, I feel, think, remember, want and do, all the future things that are taking shape in me and will sometime come to consciousness, all this is the content of the unconscious. These contents are all more or less capable, so to speak, of consciousness or were once conscious and may become conscious again in the next moment. So can we just start at the beginning doing it maybe half the speed? (laughs) Maybe with just a a little inflection and some of it, a couple of pauses here and there, almost as if to raise the question when he's kind of suggesting something, you know, like... Okay, so it's a... It's, la, la, la. Do you know what I mean? It's a list. So let's take everything on the list as a different flower in the forest of terrible let's things. Let's do that. Okay. So the first one is a Venus flytrap. Ding. Everything of which I know, but of which I am not at the moment thinking. Okay. Everything that I know... Okay, so stuff that can easily be brought into consciousness, but you're just not thinking it right now. Dawn's sex life. I just assume you weren't thinking of her sex life in that moment. But I don't know anything of it anyway, other than it has produced a baby. Well, there you go. Okay, I know a little of it. 
hello, Dawn. Hello, Dawn. So that was good. Venus flytrap, first one. We've got something that wasn't in your consciousness being brought into your consciousness. It is there. It's just you're not thinking about it right now until you say Dawn and the Dong or something. Uh, Well, until you go to eat a banana and you catch a glimpse of yourself in the mirror filleting that phallic object Uh and suddenly something that was in your unconscious mind pops into consciousness. Yes, absolutely. Or um, the classic one is don't think about an elephant. Don't mention the war. Yes. Uh, Yeah, and that. So... What's the next flower going to be? It is. It's don't mention the war. That's a very good example. Flower two in the forest of the unconscious. No, I want you to describe the flower. Oh, yes. I'm saying flower two is... (gasps) Flower two is the poppy. The poppy is notorious for growing deep in the shady undergrowth of the forest of terrible things. Yes. Everything of which I was once conscious but have now forgotten... Oh, that's an easy one, you know, things you've forgotten. Great. But um, it's a, it is it's a little bit more interesting, though, because it was with the introduction of psychoanalysis that people started to associate forgetfulness with unconscious drives as opposed to just human fallibility, failings. Yeah, but, you know, more generally, he's talking there about things that he's forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> he is, come on. But but there is a point... No, 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 no. no. You... Oh, I forgot to pick up my dad's medication. I forgot to pick up my dad's because medication. because you secretly want him to die. Yeah, right. So that you can impregnate your mother. Yeah, but saying all of the things that I've forgotten does not mean, I don't think, all of the things that he has psychoanalytically... I want a better word, but he has forgotten to do. Like zip his flies up when walking into a room full of ladies. <laughs> So, but are you saying that not everything that you forget is a secret to... Yeah, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, James. Okay, yes. Everything of which I was once... Although, do you know what just happened? So when I was in therapy, I used to go into the toilet and have a wee every time I went to therapy, probably more than once, because I always felt like I was going to wet myself in those days. And I'd go in and there would be this uh, toilet roll... Uh, holder that was really phallic shaped and I saw it every every week for like I don't know five years before they changed sites and I went somewhere else and every week I wanted to come back the next week with a sign that said sometimes a toilet roll holder is just a toilet roll holder (laughs) (laughs) but I never did so that was something that I'd forgotten and got brought into my consciousness so that is like the Venus flytrap uh what's the next flower uh, so we've done the poppy, that's forgetting stuff. We've done the Venus flytrap, that is bringing something back into your consciousness that was not currently there. Um, the next flower is the wild lily. Everything perceived by my senses, but not noted by my conscious mind. Oh, we were talking about this one last week, weren't we? Yeah. We were making you sense and perceive. Okay, so that is... <sighs> It could be the chill of the wind on your back when you already have something in your mind. It could be the pain that you've got in your legs that you don't bring into consciousness until you get home and take your shoes off. It could be the the um, hunger. It could be heartache. It could be all but, kinds of. But things. But those are all separate incidents. And just in, just in one. Oh, sorry, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing. Right. But I, just to to overwhelm the listener, um, <laughs> in one in one second or nanosecond, can you describe to me all the the sensory perceptions from every part of your body going into your brain. 
I know I'm setting you up to I'm asking you a question you can't possibly answer or asking you a question that it would take you a well, hundred years you don't, to answer. You don't, you, don't, you don't know any of them until you focus on them. No, but yes, but assuming you could focus on all of them, assuming yeah. you had that processing power, yeah. what are they? I have no, I don't understand the question now. No, okay, so I'm so befuddled. Okay, I'll, 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 I will start to answer it. And I will try and get to the point where it becomes tedious and stop, but You're, I may overshoot the mark a little bit. You already have. So, so carry on. My right hand, I've got the sensation at the tip of my little finger, in the middle of my little finger, at the end of my little finger. I then move to the next finger. I've got the sensation in the tip, in the middle, and at the end. I then move to my next finger. And we can continue that for... If you're still with us, I do really appreciate that. Do go on, James. Then I've got my wrist and I've got every single hair on my arm uh-huh. and then I've got another arm so that doubles all of that and then all Yes, the... yes, we're all aware that there are billions of points of sensory information flowing through our skin and nerve endings. Most our... of which you're not paying attention to ever. No, like I said, the better way to think about it was the only time you really use that consciously that information that's coming in because our our unconscious brain is using that you know our our automatic and autonomic um, nervous systems are using that to be able to move and speak and breathe so it's all being used but it's only the stuff that we focus on that we experience in our conscious mind is that good is that good that's lovely so what's the next flower okay the next flower is lemongrass Everything which, involuntarily and without paying attention to it, I feel, think, remember, want and do. What? Can you do that one again? That was a difficult one. Everything which, involuntarily and without paying attention to it, I feel, think, remember, want and do. Yeah, the things that float, float. I don't know, that's a tricky one. It's quite complex. I I really don't... So when you're hungry, you want food. You don't just sit down and decide... What should I want right now? Maybe I should want some food. Yes, I'm going to want some food. Here we go. And now I want some food. It just happens. I would have thought that you were more like that. (laughs) A human would eat now. It appears to be around dinner time. (laughs) No, yeah, I get it. Absolutely. You know, oh, yeah, my, again, like back to my, all my legs are getting tired and I should have a rest and, oh, rest is good. And I like, you know, the kind of almost like associations that are popping into your head from your stimulus. Oh, my life is getting scarily close to the freedom of responsibility. I should just sit down in front of Netflix and zone out. You don't actually consciously think that, but you do it. Oh, James, we'll come back to that one later. Okay. And that was lemongrass, was it? (laughs) The lemongrass flower. It must have a flower. These things all have flowers, okay? What's the next one? Um, The next one is the rose, the wild rose. All the future things that are taking shape in me and will sometime come to consciousness. So the fact that when you have a thought pop into your mind, it pops into your mind, goes to show that what you think in the moment is... It's like Victoria Beckham is wearing this season. Yes. What she's wearing now, you will wear months down the line. What's in the unconscious now is the cutting edge that Victoria Beckham is wearing. And months down the line, when you, a lesser mortal, goes to George by Asda, 
you get the thought in consciousness. It pops into consciousness, just like the van arrives at Asda. The clothes are unload, unloaded. The lot. So let me say right. So Victoria Beckham mm-hmm. designs is is the originator of fashion for this. For this example. It's a great example so far. (laughs) Victoria Beckham is the originator of fashion. She designs clothes from nothing, although obviously that's not true because she has been informed by the whole history of her life and Mm -hmm. fashion before her. But we assume that everything she creates comes from her. And let's just assume that she has designed something that will then make its way to a catwalk, which will then make its way to high-end stores and will then be copied by Asda and sold in Sutton. And you will go and buy that thing because your your hunter-gatherer needs can only be met by shopping. So, ages ago, seasons ago, Victoria Beckham had an idea... Then it took a long time for her to go through the process of realising it and to get it on the catwalk and then to get it into the high-end stores and to market it and so on. Then eventually it gets in the magazines and all this and people start talking about it. Eventually it gets into the collective unconscious or collective conscious. And then finally, someone at Asda says, oh, look, you know what's being talked about at the moment? This. Let's do a version of that and we'll make some profit out of those impressionable, utterly unindividuated consumers of junk that come through our doors. Mm. That's you. You walk through the doors. You see something and you think, oh, that's quite nice. I'll have that. That is just something that has popped into your consciousness that was dreamed up by Victoria Beckham a long time ago. Yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, the, the seed of creativity is planted perhaps years before the viewer gets to see the beauty of the flower. So when you have a thought in consciousness, Mm -hmm. it could be that it comes from something that has been in your unconscious for even longer than Victoria Beckham to Asda. Cool. (laughs) What was that flower? A rose. (laughs) A a, a wild rose. Uh, Is there another one? Nope, that was the last one. Great, excellent. There we go, done. <laughs> on to the next thing. What was number two on your list again, James? Because we rewound rapidly to get back to number one. It was talking about the differences between psychology and psychoanalysis. Note to self-editing. I know that you know that I know that we know that everyone in this room knows that we talked about it there last night. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The listener doesn't know that. Back in the room. So, Dan, what can you tell me about your impression what what how do you feel psychoanalysis and psychology are different or similar or what do you think uh, i mean it's, that's a good question i've ever think about that i mean we're talking about the unconscious mind here at the moment aren't we so i'm sure there's plenty of other conversations we can have about the differences between the conscious and unconscious mind and the you know the psych the clinical psychology theories and the the psychiatry theories and the psychoanalytical theories. My understanding is that with psychologists, they use... Well, one of the things they love using is validated rating tools. And validated rating tools are questionnaires, in essence, that manage to pigeonhole everyone into certain categories and brackets so that then we can show that we have moved during treatment to another bracket or another category. We're kind of seen as 
a group of people like oh here comes the anorexic this is what the anorexic will think in these in these parameters uh, and um, and so therefore if the anorexic thinks in these parameters we need to say this to them and this will help them change their behaviors and they'll move to a different parameter because it's an anorexic a group of people the anorexics I mean that's oversimplifying it but then with a psychoanalyst and you know I don't know probably quite as much as I would hope to about this they would see an individual and they would see someone who has symptoms which dis display anorexia display a starvation of the self but they would look at those symptoms the not eating the um avoiding certain foods the quest for control over numbers and weight and calorie and body shape and the quest for control over those people around them and they would look at the personal meaning it had to that individual person they would look at the symbolic meaning of only allowing themselves green food if it, if that was one of the the uh one of the characteristic traits they wouldn't be like right only see green food well let's go to the green food um questionnaire why do you only eat green food do you only eat green food half the time this time and put them into a category they would allow the individual to work with the therapist uh in in psycho in, in analysis to to find the meaning between behind self-starvation the symbolic meaning the personal meaning and perhaps even a quite a pragmatic meaning but it would be done at the individual's pace it wouldn't be about telling the individual that they're just like other people it would be about exploring that meaning okay so i completely agree with that last point all of what you said but specifically that last point you said about how the psychoanalyst wouldn't tell the patient the the object the victim in their <laughs> the, the snake in their private practice that they are just like everyone else but we'll come back to that in a second but in an ideal world, I am in favour of multidiscipline thinking for whatever kind of practice. So, for example, so one of the things that are interesting me the most at the moment are the more I read about psychoanalysis, the more I try and interpret how those ideas are relevant to anything else, such as politics or family life or whatever. And so we've just described two different approaches to understanding why someone does something. Uh, one is to, is to assign parameters and to look at the correlations between what a group of people do given a certain stimulation, as if they're nothing more than a, a, an animal that is just a stimulus and response machine. And then we look at the psychoanalyst who takes every single human and takes them on a journey through the forest of terrible things, through the process of individuation, so that they are, at the end of it, as unique and differentiated from the billions of other humans as they possibly can be. But what I think may be a theme this week is the balance of the two. So ideally, the psychoanalyst would be interested in the outcomes of the psychologist's very pigeonholed scientific research and equally the psychologist would be 
uh, aware of the limitations of science, particularly looking at the brain, because you can't get an outside perspective. Remember that very useful example I gave of when the aliens come to Earth, finally they'll be able to look at humans from an outside perspective and deliver their verdicts. And until that point, we are just looking at ourselves, introspecting and stabbing around in the dark and guessing. So the psychologist who is looking scientifically at that which can be categorized should know the limitations of that and be fascinated by what the psychoanalyst can essentially guess at. Uh, but the reality is more likely that the, the psychologist might think, I'm doing the genuine science, I'm the real scientist, that psychoanalyst over there is basically just a tarot reading, horoscope writing, witchy charlatan. Charlatan, yeah. Mm. Okay. Meanwhile, the psychoanalyst will think, I am the divine seer of all truth and that boring pigeonholing psychologist over there is nothing but a, a primitive and irritating obstacle to enlightenment. I think, it's, I think that yeah. second one is unlikely. I think the more likely one is the psychologist dismissing psychoanalysis as, as being a made-up bit of rubbish or from working in multidisciplinary teams um they get on really well and listen to each other because they both have something to say about how to help a person who is struggling with their internal world and their behaviors well that's how it should be but that's not how subjects are taught certainly not in the education system in the uk you're taught to specialize and specialize and specialize and specialize until eventually you get to your essence and that is your contribution to the economy well, I don't know if it is like that. It depends how you interpret it, doesn't well, it? That's, well, it's not like that for me because I didn't have a, such a formal education. I kept jumping around from school to school. And then crucially, my dad died when I was 16 and I had to make big life decisions. And my mum had zero um, control or influence. Like she, she didn't try to steer me into anything. So as a clueless teenager, I just guessed at life from that point onwards. And so I pinballed all over the place. Um, I basically taught myself graphic design when I was 13. And that is how I make a living now. But in the process of going to university, I did, a, I just did whatever I wanted, screenwriting, MA in radio, all this kind of stuff that has got, that has never earned me a penny. But it was what I felt like at the time and nothing stopped me. So off I went and did it. But you don't see similarities and connections between the things that you did, you know? The... No, I do, because I draw all of that together, or at least I try to. Um, and, it, and I've always had a hard time when people look at my CV and turn it upside down and say, so, so, so you, went, you went to film school and then you went to radio school and now you're applying for a job at Southwark College to do admin can you tell me more about that and I think no not really <laughs> and then I don't get the job or they're desperate and they hire me mm -hmm. so I've always valued a multi-discipline approach because on the one hand it's all I've ever known and on the other hand, whenever I see something I perceive as interesting, either it's my own vanity seeing myself or it is a genuine appreciation of what drawing together disparate sources can do to make you more interesting and make you think of ideas that are not just the prescribed things that you've already learned in your very focused education. 
And I think part of the reason why psychoanalysis is still quite niche and fringe a hundred years later is that it is just its own weird occult thing for the fortunate people who can afford the vast fortunes of uh, going into psychoanalysis. I'm wondering though, like, do do you know? Do you think that a, a large percentage of psychologists, psychiatrists, because obviously we should throw psychiatry in there as well. You asked for psychology versus analysis, but we should probably throw psychiatry in there as well because psychiatry dip in and out of both. They kind of try and blend. Um, but do you think, in your mind, do the practitioners of each of the dark arts, the three Ps, psychiatry, psychology, and psychotherapy, or the psychoanalysis, that they only believe and only use their own, you know, tools that they 100% think are the right answer and the correct and, and are kind of like um, dogmatised, is that a word? No, into... not necessarily the actual practitioners. I'm sure there are some. I'm sure there are plenty of psychologists who think that anything that can't be proven with the scientific method is just quacky claptrap. Yeah. But... I th but once you get to that stage, you're probably curious. But then, you, then, then it's probably the older ones that are the more curious and the more open. As like the old kind of cliche: the older you get, the more you realise you don't know, or whatever. That's a like well, someone in their twenties or thirties going into psychology might think, "Well, this is it. This is this is. I'm learning the science of the future. I'm I am the future." And they're probably less interested in wacky hundred-year-old ideas from times of alchemy and seances. Uh -huh. I, I think actually, you know, this is a really interesting conversation. Um, I think if we look at the individuals who are uh, practitioners of psychology or analysis, look at their backgrounds and look at what those things symbolically mean to them, you know, what do they need from facts? Because in essence, psychologists are trying to deal with facts, facts about the person, facts about getting the person better. And in essence, from my perspective, of course, analysts are looking at potentials and theories and ideas and symbols and, and, uh, and, and the art of understanding oneself. So they're kind of quite different. It's like science versus art um, f from from my perspective. But if you look at the people, you know, if I thought about the clinical psychologists that I know, the majority of them are women. Almost all of them that I've known are white. Almost all of them are middle class to upper middle class. Almost all of them are quite firmly believing that clinical psychology other facts about how to get someone better and it's the best evidence and this is what we do that doesn't mean though that they necessarily dismiss what someone else is doing and uh, of the psychotherapists i know there's only a hand the, the the analysts i know there's only a handful that are so rigid in their thinking that they would think that they have the right answer i think i probably i don't know how it got into this but i was I was probably thinking about psychologists who dismiss psychoanalysis, but in general, amongst people who have nothing to do with either of those things, there is probably a 
an assumption that science is truth, empirical fact that you can trust, and psychoanalysis is the realm of frauds and charlatans. I think if they did believe that, the psychologists are smarter than saying it. I don't understand. The psychologists aren't as dismissive, perhaps, as you would imagine that they are. But I'm not talking about the psychologists. I'm talking about Bob the Builder. He probably thinks if a psychologist says, in this experiment, the monkey put the red ball in the blue square five times, and that means that you're an ENTP, they probably think, oh, yeah, that's proper science. Whereas if the psychoanalyst comes along and says, oh, you had a dream about a yellow digger last night, I think that means you want to slay your father and penetrate your mother they're probably thinking yeah you're basically reading your tarot cards and looking at venus in alignment with the lunar menopause and you're coming out with whatever wacky what you've been smoking something and you think that if you say all these mystical words i'm going to be enchanted like a snake but i'm not because i'm too rational for your claptrap you're a charlatan get off my doorstep bob the builder <laughs> Is that what you said? <laughs> In fact, reasons why psychoanalysis is hated, there's a nice little passage in this book. Freud and later psychoanalysts have described many ways in which human beings attempt to hide emotional truths from themselves. These are the mechanisms of defence, which include repression, which is banishing from consciousness, projection, attributing to another person an unwanted aspect of oneself, rationalization concocting spurious explanations of one's motivations all of i know i'm racing through a list of like the, the express train that's not stopping at any of the stops we'll stop at the stops in a minute but um splitting keeping contradictory attitudes or feelings in separate components of awareness manic defenses which are ways of denying feelings of depression and many other subtle variations on these themes and these forms of lying to yourself are both important and commonplace and they reveal how flimsy our conscious knowledge of ourselves is however there's a deeper reason for our dread of psychoanalysis it says mm -hmm. this is the Actually, the quote I was about to read. Right, right, okay. Uh, Beyond its re revelation of motivations that are unconscious, it's the threatening encounter with the utter otherness of the unconscious, deep in the forest of terrible things. The life that dwells inside us, unknown to us, directing us and yet not speaking our language. The terrifying oracle that utters or mutters incomprehensibly during sleep. So fear. And on top of that, when we talk about the individuation process, the integration of the conscious, as much of the conscious mind as possible into consciousness to become as free-willed and individuated self it is possible to be, that requires going into places that you don't normally go to. And the reason you don't no normally go to is because you're a lazy, pleasure-seeking puppet to the strings of your genes and you're just trying to get through life, having a good time, having as much happiness and fun and pleasure as possible, minimizing pain and suffering, mm -hmm. um, and within the constraints of having to earn a living, which for some people is all consuming and for others is still taking up a lot of their time anyway, leaving very little time for introspection. And so the idea of actually doing that is 
for, for lots of people not practical and for those for whom it is practical it's not something that they necessarily want to do like if i sit here and say to you we're going to go through every reason why you're lazy and selfish and violent and sexually subversive and all these other things you're going to say no i think i'll have some ice cream and watch netflix not you daniel p brown one yeah, yeah, is going to say yeah, that yeah We've spoken about this before, you and I. I remember distinctly suggesting that one of the ideas that Jung um, has is this idea that we have two selves. You know, there's the, 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 the public self, I guess, that we all want to be, which is a part of us, you know, uh, positive perhaps. You know, I'm, I'm, you know it, it might not always be like this, but on the whole, positive, kind... Uh, respectable, hardworking, um, consistent, reliable, and then there's this this other us just behind them who might we might try and keep the the wolf at the door. Is it wolf from the door? Wolf by the door? Wolf at the door? Wolf from the door? Anyway, we we just try and stop this part of us overtaking and becoming us. This this shadow self. This this second personality that's there, this kind of different character. Um, and I think we have a conscious awareness of that a lot of the time. I think the unconscious constantly spits little bit, bits of this from our unconscious mind into our conscious mind. Like the way, um, you know, tell me if you recognise this, that we have a maybe slightly quieter but maybe louder internal monologue that sometimes will quite quickly switch to being highly critical of other people. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a way of knowing that that's there in us. This, we wouldn't usually be highly critical of other people. Of course, no, that's not us. We're this nice, kind, reliable, consistent, friendly person. But actually, when we catch ourselves saying, look at James, look at him, he's so fucking weird. You know, he's so fucking pale and that smarmy, smug grin that I'm continuously having to look at and first thing in the morning I have to look it's fucking annoying you know and you can have this kind of internal monologue like this but we wouldn't want to just voice that out loud we would almost do anything to stop ourselves from saying that to anyone you know to our boss you know we're having a conversation with our boss and we're thinking uh, we're nodding yes no of course definitely get that done must have reports done oh, absolutely deadline that's really important oh yeah must do my annual review um paperwork and in 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 the other side of your head you're thinking fuck off you fat cunt you're a lazy stupid arsehole no one actually likes you i'm in a room with you i can smell you you're disgusting i hope you die in fact well beyond that let's fantasize about murdering them let's fucking well but really visualizing it not just the idea not just an abstract idea of their death actually holding the weapon in your hand and brutally murdering them yourself and picturing it and looking all around the room at the at, at, at the consequences of that oozing everywhere um imagining who might come in behind you what you might say whether you might be victorious uh, maybe maybe all the people you know you fantasize about them coming in and looking at you as the new you have slayed satan you are now god and they will follow you as their leader and this is a whole fantasy that you can have while the boss is still saying and yes yeah, so on page 112 i think you just need to review that thing that you wrote about the pro interrelationship 
motivational prospects of our second quarter, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, but I, I'm saying that that, that thing, you know, because um, maybe most of us would allow ourselves to go as far as thinking about prodding our boss with a pen. But like, if that, if you're in psychoanalysis, you might go as far as describing murdering them. What saying it out loud? Yes, saying oh, it out loud. Yeah. But 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 anyone would wait. What in your head? You think? No, I thought you were saying that grisly. No, I th- you fucking weird. I thought you were saying that most people would only fantasize about poking the boss with a pen, and only a psychopath would fantasize about brutally murdering the boss. No, no, that's that's not what I'm saying. That's, I'm that's just, not what I'm saying either. No, I know. I'm I'm just I'm I was pulling your leg as well i'm just saying that i think we have access to that thing that you just described from your very long paragraph that you read uh, that we're scared of psychotherapy and we can be dismissive of psychotherapy because actually unconsciously we do not want to face that side of us so yeah so the reason that the whole process of psychoanalysis as i see it is to go from completely deluding yourself potentially you might delude yourself into thinking i'm a harmless nice guy it's unfair that everything goes wrong for me why can't i have a successful relationship why do i have all these problems why am i always anxious blah 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 i'm just a good person it's unfair that all this happens to me and you know you go into therapy but the reality is that no one is just a harmless good person and that's not and this is why i like reading Carl Rogers because the opposite of what I just said is the kind of Christian as in religious Christian view that we're all uh, born into sin and we have to basically crawl out of the cesspit to prove our worthiness for heaven in the afterlife Mm -hmm. but Carl Rogers doesn't have that view of humanity he believes that or he believed that all human beings are potentially good and therefore, or are, are predetermined to be good. It's only if things go really wrong that they end up being perceived as bad. It's most human beings, if things fall into place, their prerogative is to do good. Yeah, their, they... their primary personality traits and characters are that, you know be kind to others, work hard, try your best. But to think that you're just a nice, harmless person, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny because as soon as you look at the bigger picture of how you're one of billions of competing humans uh, trying to constantly get your hands on resources and you're constantly competing against other human beings for um relationships you want you're trying you're competing for people to find you sexually attractive and those who are the most beautiful have an advantage everyone else is a is a victim of uh not habitus and narrativization but mother nature herself uh and so on through all this kind of reality of humanity the the fact that you're constantly competing against other humans you're constantly driven to hunt and gather and procreate and seek pleasure and so on and everything comes at a cost but the 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 process of psychoanalysis is as far as i see it to recognize as much as you can 
all of those unconscious desires that are not necessarily polite, not necessarily things that you would want to be exhausted at a dinner party with acquaintances, not things you necessarily want to uh, write down on a list and send to your future in-laws, etc., etc. Um, not something you'd want to um, be written behind you on the wall during a first date so that this person is looking above your head thinking, oh, you're very selfish and you are sexually quite aggressive and you like all kinds of things that I would consider very selfish, guilty pleasures and you, go, you sacrifice an awful lot of virtuous things in order to achieve those. In fact, to be honest, <laughs> you, it is completely within your ability to send all your money to a charity that provides malaria nets and that could probably be the best thing that you could ever do with your life but instead of that you've just bought a Fiat Punto so why am I even on this date with you because you're just a reprehensible piece of scum mm -hmm. why would I spend any more time with you because when it's written on the wall behind you I can see just how disgusting you are mm -hmm. until her list or his list <laughs> turns up on the wall behind them and other person in the but day realises they're just as, as grotesque. But the thing is, so to, to, to be in denial of all this, to just think that you're a good person and then to be surprised when the world is unfair, to be surprised when people don't like you, to be surprised when your relationships don't work, when you don't get jobs, mm -hmm. to be surprised when you mm. lose out to other people in terms of health, prospects, happiness, whatever. Um, means that you're constantly dissatisfied and suffering from anxiety. Whereas to recognize all of this, to bring it into consciousness, and just to be aware of it and to then be able to make more purposeful decisions with that in mind, it doesn't mean you have to suddenly change your outlook to think, I am an evil person, now that I acknowledge it, I'm free to be evil, because that's not what Carl Rogers claims is the purpose of psychoanalysis, and that's not what I believe is the purpose of psychoanalysis. But to bring into consciousness that which is unconscious, which is not just nice and fair, is essential for, for to, to be able to make more informed decisions about yourself rather than just being deluded into thinking, oh, but I'm just a nice guy. Why does everything go wrong for me? It's not fair. Mm-hmm. 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 Well said, James. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the, like, acceptance initially that I mean, you're never going to go into therapy if you think you're a perfect person, really, are you? You're never going to go into therapy um, if you don't, if you pay no attention to those thoughts and ideas and drives that you have that you're ashamed of. But the idea that you should wait for it to get crippling and then consider yourself mentally ill and loaded with all the stigma yeah. and think, I've got to get out of this so that I can be normal again yeah. is still the status quo a hundred years later yeah to, to be fair it is it is the norm um the idea especially for men that all of this is going on in their head however it gets twisted up however you know whether it's you know self-attacking because you become aware of your faults and flaws um or you're starting to become aware of them or because you're disgusted with your you know sexual drive or your um or your fantasy, 
or you are appalled and worried that you might commit atrocities because you have thoughts to commit atrocities. Men are much worse, in a way, at keeping those things locked in and making sure that they don't affect the others around them. But actually, what it does, like you say, it, 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 it's insidious, it twists you, it, it changes how you behave and how you look after yourself, how you relate to other people. Um, and that's not to say that will happen to everyone. A lot of people can live in complete denial of this their entire existence and therefore, in essence, never need therapy. They just go through their life, perhaps having an internal monologue that gets very irritated by other people, but they have enough self-control, as many people would put it, to keep that locked in. Um, well, I don't think that's healthy. No, I think that is just an utterly unremarkable, normal person who I find thoroughly uninteresting, and that's just the case with most human beings. Although I'm not necessarily as cynical and jaded as that sounds, because I also see every human being as having the potential for anything and to be and I don't mean the potential for anything as in like we can all be astronauts yeah we can all be astronauts we can all be Beyonce Beyonce no I don't mean that I mean the potential could Beyonce be an astronaut <laughs> I mean I mean the the potential for for plasticity elasticity of mind mm, in that they're not rigidly fixed for as long as they are rigidly fixed for as long as they do nothing about it, but they always have the potential to do something about it. That's why I, I, I don't see my point of view as cynical and jaded because there are plenty of people who just live utterly boring, uh, predictable lives as puppets to society and genes and everything until one day something happens and they start to change. And to consider them still boring after that would be an incorrect perception mm. and so and therefore to consider them as always boring in advance is potentially completely incorrect so i see all people as having the potential to be interesting but the reality is that most people are boring because they say predictable things they do what everyone else does and half the time it's not very interesting yeah they keep it safe don't they yeah they keep it safe but everything that you were just talking about is sort of like the theory of psychodynamics, whereby when you, when you are just keeping yourself under control, the nor the do you want to describe sort of like the normal, especially well we're in England, so the normal English man who doesn't go into therapy but has everything sane and sorted. Um, what kind of things might they keep under control? Like they don't rape, they don't murder, uh -huh. they don't. They see. They they think they see themselves as a role model, an upstanding member of the community. Uh -huh. They keep it all together. <clears throat> they hold Sorry. down a job. They've possibly yes. got children. They've yep. possibly got a wife. Yep. They've possibly got a successful mistress that no one knows about. Uh -huh. They're holding it all together. Yep. They've probably done some bad things that also no one knows about. Holding it all together. Um, may, they, all the people they hate, as far as they're concerned, don't know that they hate them. Holding it all together. Is that what you're talking about, this sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it can be much more subtle and less you know, nasty than that mistress <laughs> on the side hating all these people. But yeah, you, people aren't really... Uh, the people that they're connecting with, they're not truly connecting with. Exactly. There's a kind of a, a disconnected self. I think well, at some point we'll have to get slightly deeper into Carl Rogers, but his his view of a productive relationship between two people is something that almost never happens. 
And again, he was writing in the 1950s, and if humanity had learned from him, then by now there would be no such thing as office politics, there'd be no such thing as Donald Trump, there'd be no such thing, potentially, because the, 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 the relationships that people have with each other mm-hmm. are generally everything that is not what is from Carl Rogers' research, everything that is not the best way to see a person become themselves, which means integrate and have a unique personality that is not like a sheep being or a sailboat being blown by the winds of everyone else around them. And that's that word individuate you keep saying, isn't it? Yeah, and I think lots of it's very, I think it's also quite fashionable now for people to look at psychology as a way of making them uh, shielded from all those people out there trying to manipulate them, trying to get money out of them, trying to scam them, trying to cheat them to the promotion at work and all that sort of stuff. I think it's more fashionable for people to think, okay, I'm going to suss out all these personality types. I'm going to have everyone in the office sussed so that I know all their motivations, all their dark arts, and I'm going to win the game, essentially. It's as if you're playing a game to win and you, you strategize in order to get there. And everything is about game theory and politics and psychology and all this sort of stuff. And it is never about personal integration and the freedom that comes from the responsibility of doing that. And it is never about an open relationship with someone else whereby you are just conscious space for them to exist and vice versa. They are just conscious space for you to exist. And the more honest and open you are with each other, the more likely you're both going to be able to reach your potential for whatever it is you want. Mm -hmm. But that was someone writing in the 1950s about this. And these days, most of what I see is exactly the opposite. For, for whatever reason, there seems to be, um, and my, my, brain's, my mind is becoming overloaded with various different ideas at the minute, but there seems to be some obsession with the self in a way that isn't, isn't healthy you know uh you know what's that phrase um like live your best life that doesn't actually mean you know across social media platforms at least that doesn't actually mean being the kindest and most integrated and most individual person you can be that means being buying into all of the potentially faddy um new ideas about long life and health and and wealth and and um and being able to show everyone that you've done that you know like not just the beach body but the um the perfectly beautiful diet that you're you're eating and the the perfect um look that you've got and, and the all most, the likes that validate you and all the likes that validate you and and this this idea that publicizing yourself is almost as important if not more important than living a life that is a good life not to put a huge amount of kind of um moralistic like flavor on it but like a, like a an individual personal good life rewarding life that seems less relevant than promoting that you've done that and it completely takes your attention away from the sensory inputs and the thoughts that you have naturally occurring in consciousness as things pop in from the unconscious 
but but more the sensory input. Um, and so rather than being abstract, I have a perfect example of this. I went out on Saturday and I went on one of my long walks that I normally love doing. It's absolutely a flow experience. It's absolutely concentration and attention. And I look at the trees and I notice things that I haven't noticed before in particular places. And sometimes I just want to pay attention to a podcast and therefore I'll walk in a straight line and be able to just give all my attention to the, to the sense of audio um, as it's coming into my mind rather than just having that as a bit of background wallpaper that I don't listen to because I'm thinking about other, paying attention to other things. If, I, if I'm walking, if I'm just walking in a straight line, not bothering about where I'm going, why I'm going there or what anyone would think of why I'm doing it, I can completely pay attention to a conversation. Um, and if, I don't, if, if it's not that, if I'm just listening to some music and walking through uh, the woodland area near here, then I can pay attention to all the different types of foliage, all the different heights and shapes of trees, all the, dif all the different colours of duck that might float past on the Wandle River and things like that. And that is unbelievable joy that I've never ever enjoyed um, since I was a child really. Uh, maybe a few exceptions, but largely by accident, certainly not purposeful. Um, and now I can just do it all the time whenever I want to, and it's wonderful. Except on Saturday, I decided to take up a, a well, I'm going to simplify it for the podcast, to take up a challenge and to record a video of myself. And so therefore, I turned the attention and the camera back to myself and was constantly aware of everything I was doing, I was viewing from the judgy, critical eye of an imaginary person who is watching me by means of having the camera on myself. And it was a total distraction from everything. Um, I mean, fortunately, I wasn't in a, near any busy roads because obviously I wouldn't have been paying attention to traffic coming along. And in the, in the uh, total distraction of vanity, I could have been holding the camera where it gets the best angle as I walked in front of the lorry that would have ploughed me to my death. Oh. But that didn't happen. Oh. Um, but everywhere I went, it was just as vacuous and boring as I expected it would be to, to just be prancing around, showing off no particular talent and obsessing over what the camera is looking at and what the judgy person with the eyes where the camera is are going to think of me and how I look and what I'm doing and whether or not I'm wonderful and whether they're going to be impressed by the thing that is what I'm doing. Dance like no one's watching. Well, it's, it's exa exactly not that because the camera's watching. So I'm not dancing like no one's watching. And increasingly people, are not, as, as I see it, are not dancing like no one's watching. They're dancing like... Because they hope someone's watching. They hope someone's watching. And, and if they dance well and it hasn't been captured on camera for the Instagram story, then they basically didn't dance at all. And they need to just repeat it. And then it probably won't be as good as the previous time. And then the whole thing's a catastrophe. Mm. And then they're anxious and then they start blaming Boris Johnson and capitalism for the end of the world. Yep. So, <laughs> what, what tickled your fancy there, James? Well, I mean, that was a slightly ridiculous ending to that story, but... Yeah, I mean, it, it does... It does... I mean, the thing that's been 
sort of bothering me recently. Um, and I, I know I have friends that do it. In social media again, I'm, I'm social media hating today. I'm social media hating most of the time, actually. But today I'm talking about it. And it's people's obsession with their own children. Absolute obsession with showing everything that their children do. But that's understandable. Every parent is obsessed with their own children and has to be. Because if you're not obsessed with your own children, you'll think, well, my child is has no more worth, meaning or value in the universe than any other child. And given that there are plenty of them starving in Africa, I may as well just neglect my child for a week and save some of those from death. And then hopefully my child won't actually die. And when it just about survives the week, I'll... Throws, no, give it some baked no, beans no, on toast no, no, or something no, 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 and tell it it's grateful that it's not. No, that's a ridiculous dying of that's malaria. That's absolute nonsense. That's total shit. But the different. No, but I'm saying that. The, okay, so that's. An, I've deliberately exaggerated. But, but why? Why would you deliberately so that, exaggerate so that? To explain that it is perfectly natural for parents to be obsessed with their children. But the difference is that when you're constantly showing it off on social media, you're not actually paying attention to the child. You're paying attention to what someone else might think, the judgment of an other who is looking at your parenting and looking at your child and liking it or ignoring it. Yes. One of those being the outcome that you want and the other being the outcome you don't want. Yeah, and it's a self-obsession in, in, in effect because it's like, look how well I'm parenting, look what we did today. But it's the idea that you would want to put so many images of your own children on social media. And the, the ones that I really struggle with, is there, are, there are plenty where the title of the Instagram is me and my boys or my two boys or mummy's little helper, you know, this kind of sickening shit that's just continuously blasting out tosh about the crap that, you know, all families do and just putting it out there continuously every single day, photos and photos and photos of their kids. I mean, it, I'm sure that they're, you know, they're, the, the grandparents and the aunts and uncles, you know, love the children. Brilliant. It's excellent. And I have no problem with people sharing photos of their family, but it's these, like, people who are almost blogging their children for those likes. I have a problem with it and I don't know how to interpret it. I don't know how to understand that. I mean, uh, you know, the, the closest I've got to is probably sharing 20 or 30 photos over the 10 years I've had my tortoise. <laughs> you know? A couple of photos of a cat. And I don't think they've even gone on, on Instagram. But it, it's, I, I think it, I find it quite disturbed. I find it quite sick. Before you become the nutter, the old bloke in the pub who's constantly <laughs> trying to get something off his chest. It's too late, James. I'm going to put you too to late. use. So I <coughs> whizzed through from defence mechanisms, yeah. uh, as Freud saw them. Yeah. Um, I want you to provide a nice, accessible example of each one the listener, where the listener can think... Good. I'm glad Dan is here because all James does is complicate things with his lofty ideas. Dan brings things down to earth. Okay, nice. I like how you, you gave me a compliment there. Wait one second. So let's just recap what we're doing here today because I think that might be quite useful because we're approaching the end of the podcast and I think this might be quite an interesting run into um, uh, the Unconscious uh, miniseries episode three um, and it's what Freud, you know, godfather of psychoanalysis described as the defense mechanisms that the unconscious mind uses in order to protect 
that thing that we've been talking about, that that nastier, more difficult to deal with side, that side that fantasizes, that side that gets that is full of rage and hatred, that side that is potentially worryingly violent or aggressive or hateful or or or, or, or disliking of of everything that is good and pure. This is the defense mechanisms are ideas in psychoanalysis, things that we do in order to stop that manifesting itself. Can we try and put this into the context of the spectrum of conscious through to unconscious, even though consciousness stops at a, a specific line, you then get into the subconscious that's easy to bring okay. into consciousness, okay. etc. until we will we're try. deep in the forest. So when you have a defense mechanism, um, that is... The psychodynamic happenings in the unconscious that are prompted by the logic of your consciousness, which dictates that you must be a good person. And therefore, when the truth of anything else exists in the unconscious, it has to be translated into something else. Yeah. Because, the, because consciousness won't acknowledge anything. It doesn't want to fit its best self that is what that is not model. that it's not capable of of of, of uh, containing basically that it doesn't have the strength of personality and individuation to contain and understand that part of themselves just before we move on the this the the idea of psychodynamics we we started off by looking at the difference between psychology and psychoanalysis and the difference between that which you can categorize and measure as much as possible using the scientific method psychology and that which you can only guess at because you could reduce the whole of psychoanalysis to guesswork it's not which isn't entirely true because you're observing outcomes but you're you can only ever guess at the unconscious you can never actually empirically say here is the data of your unconscious i've downloaded it from your brain i have printed it out in black and white 12 point clear helvetica font there's no way this is ambiguous you can read it it's all in your language it's i've checked the spelling punctuation grammar this is your unconscious there's no way you can do that it's always guesswork and that that's part the, so the fact that it's guesswork interpretation interpret okay so the fact that it's interpretation is reason number one why psychoanalysis could be dismissed as charlatan quackery Reason number two that people don't like it is because, as we've talked about, they don't want to violate the impression that they have uh. created of themselves in consciousness. I am a good person. I am virtuous. Uh -huh. People like me. I am a success. Or it could be the opposite. It could be I'm useless. I ne never do anything. No one likes me. Everyone hates me. In which case they don't want to acknowledge any of the good things because that proves wrong that which they hold as a core belief in consciousness and that there is something wrong and they need help and i don't believe that psychoanalysis is a science <laughs> <laughs> well and it, i think that it's, it's not it's just not <laughs> and i think that it's bad to well first it's bad to dismiss it because it's not a science to say that science is virtuous and wonderful and true and everything else and psychoanalysis being not that can safely be filed under astrology tarot cards um charlatanism yeah uh it's conspiracy theories all the rest of it i think is absolutely false because 
the nature of the psyche is that everything we're talking about in the unconscious is entirely relevant and we know that there is that the unconscious exists it's the unconscious itself is not something that can be well anything can be denied but it's not something that is denied um it's just the the fact that it's just the scientific proof doesn't exist of what the contents of the unconscious okay so i'm i'm addressing firstly the reluctance to go into the unconscious because it's only ever interpretation it's not scientific but what i'm really getting at is that our society as it is at the moment has become in my view very rational and scientific and i'm not saying that's a bad thing i'm saying it's a thing and therefore things like uh thing good things that come out of it so for us gay rights for example for years and years and years and years and years they didn't exist because of supposedly irrational religious beliefs that man should not sleep with man and all that sort of thing so uh, are you following me yeah, it, it is a yeah. rational thing to have gay rights to say that people are equal and if men and women can love each other and get married then men and men and women and women can do the same thing it's rational logic it's sort of progress to evolved humans we've left behind our neanderthal awful ancestors and we're trying to be better humans yeah okay. do you think that that's a societal trend and that lots of people that the progressive movement is okay right we've got equal marriage rights for gay people but that's not enough there's everywhere you look in society there's injustice and we've got to solve all this we've got to make the world better we've got to do all this on top of that, there is a, a kind of an evangelical worship of science and rational thinking. No. Rational thinking is good. Irrational thinking is bad. No, I, I think you're describing yourself. I, I don't think you're describing the society we live in. I think you're, you're, you're very much mistaken if you think that the majority of people think like that. I think that a, a large percentage of people are still God-fearing uh, and church going at, or at least r religious in their beliefs uh, c across the world cultures are massively diverse um, there, there, you know there, there is of course like a, 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 a drive from some sectors of society towards you know uh, progressivism you okay know. so maybe I'm just talking about London New York Barcelona Paris sort of like western big cities where you can be gay and not be stoned you can or gay and stoned <laughs> all these sorts of things yep i'm not disagreeing with this but it is hailed as a good thing this sort of like rational progressive movement of society in a particular direction towards uh things like social justice and all that sort of thing yeah but to the extent that when good things happen like that it is almost categorised that rationality is the only good truth and virtue. Religion is in the bin; it's over. And and I don't. And we talked about this in our in our Utopia episode. I'm not a religious person, and I know that for most of the world, religion is not in the bin. But in London, I'm saying religion is in the bin, and that rationality rules. Everything in this episode is. A is, a is a process of psychodynamics and the process of psychodynamics as we understand it now the one thing that has changed or the one thing the thing I'm talking about that has changed since Freud's day is 
within neuroscience, there has been some sort of like brain mapping to better understand the difference yeah. between the left and the right hemispheres of the brain. Uh-huh. The, um, the various bits of the brain that are the oldest and can be traced back to whatever prehistoric fish called out the sea, and the other bits of the brain that are unique to humans, not found in animals, and can be considered the evolved parts of the human brain that make humans different. Yes. And, and that is to do with rationality and ability to use logic and to conceptualize the future and mem remember the past and all that sort of thing. And that is considered enlightened and progressive and evolved and good and virtuous and true and all that sort of thing. I can only be reductive now so that I don't do too much talking. I'm going to call right brain the unconscious, left brain conscious, everything that we've talked about, uh, valuing um, scientific fact and dismissing psychoanalysis as charlatan witchcraft, Yes, that is the evolved left brain mind thinking that we are just rational beings and we can logic everything. Yeah, yeah but, no, so, but that's you, not happening. But you know well enough what lies we tell ourselves. Yeah to retrospectively apply logic where it shouldn't be applied. And I'm saying that I'm trying to say that society as a whole is kind of like 90% left brain valuing and applying logic where it doesn't make any sense and denying, con unconsciousness denying, right brain repressing and causing a lot of societal problems because of the unconscious psychodynamics of that which is repressed. So I think that a lot you're, of problems... You're saying that enlightened thinking is causing the, prob the very problems that it is trying to no, solve? No, I think enlightened thinking is a 50-50 of right brain, left brain, logic, interpretation, symbolism, facts, etc., etc. Left-wing politics, right-wing politics, everything enlightenment if you want to call it that but just being the divine james hall if you want to call it something else uh -uh. is a balance of both of those things and i've said before that i always used to be way too rational way too quick to retrospectively logic anything into whatever story that made sense to my to my own vanity it was intolerable to me that anyone would not like me it was intolerable to me that i would ever be wrong or do anything misjudged because i'm the supreme wonderful correct judge of everything okay. um all these sorts of things it, it 2020 is the year whereby i push that to no more than 50 percent of who i am and i open up the 50 percent that is interpretation and everything that goes with right brain thinking, poetic, artistic, non-specific, non-autiste friendly thinking of the, of the right brain. Good. And so I'm not saying either is right or wrong. I'm not saying either is good or bad or anything. I'm saying that a balance is needed and I'm saying that I don't see a balance in London society. And you're saying that that's not right or something yeah i'm i'm saying that that's not right i i think we will often see and hear the people who shout the loudest Actually, I, I i say sorry no i say that there can be a silent minority that are just not able to engage or 
you know, so you listen to this podcast with three Jungian psychoanalysts, right? Say we were, say we turned on Netflix, we're not going to find three hour, I don't know how long it is, live in the studio with three Jungian analysts. This, this, but it is going on. I'm not denying it's going on, but I'm, but it's, it's the, it's massively the minority. Uh. All psycho, the ideas in psychoanalysis, until I'm proved wrong, and I'm trying to prove myself wrong by actively looking for evidence to disprove yeah. my theory, ideas in psychoanalysis are massively, let's use the word, repressed in the collective unconscious. They are, uh, psychoanalysis is for rich people who can afford the luxury of that stupid, unnecessary thing. Or it's just a treatment for people who have gone off the rails and need to be dealt with medically so that they're normal again. Stigma. So, you know, it's affluence and wealth inequality on the one hand, or it's stig mental health stigma on the other, mm. or it's, um, it's simply dismissed through rationality, enlightenment and reason. And I'm not going to use the word enlightenment anymore because it means anything to anyone. But logic and rational scientific thinking is not what psychoanalysis is. It's not logical, it's not rational, it's not scientific. And if you value logic, reason and science, the only truth that you get is from logic, reason and um, things, things like that that can translate into practical applications in the real world through politics and economics. Yes, but and what so. I'm saying to you is you're trying to turn this into something that's black and white and that is not. And sadly, like they say at the end of every psychotherapy session, I'm afraid our time's up. Okay, well, next week we'll have to uh, unpack repression, projection, rationalisation, splitting and manic defences. It's goodbye from me, Daniel P. Brown, in the Private Practice Podcast Studio. And the listener may have forgotten that we are in the forest of terrible things, but maybe you could kick the undergrowth, or do you, do you want it to just be... You don't want to give the listener... You don't want to feed anything into the listener's imagination. You want it all to be their darkest thoughts of slaying their boss, who is their father, so that they can penetrate their mother with that thorny rose bush of that which is your future self that has not yet been brought into consciousness because Victoria Beckham has only just thought of it and it hasn't made its way to Asda yet. I think it's quite clear to everyone that it's you that wants that. <laughs> I've been James Hall, you're welcome. <laughs> it's a wonderful story.